why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses today, and this is uh, an exploration of Paul's missionary journey to the city of Corinth. Um, I want to just begin by saying that what is powerful about this text is that there is this unique marriage, this balance, or I should say even this tension that we find in Scripture uh, between human activity and, and God's presence in that activity or working through that activity. Uh, essentially what I'm saying is that there's this unique balance between, between our part and God's part or God's providence, uh, the, the, the divine action uh, behind what we do as, as followers of Jesus. When we look at the life of Paul, and I think within this text here, uh, what we find are two uh, really powerful realities. The opening verses, verses 1 through 6 and 18, show us Paul's pattern of ministry, and Paul's pattern actually lines up with our pillars as a church. Uh, but, and then in, in verses 7 through 11, we see God's providence, uh, the divine activity behind that pattern and the way that he orchestrates things and moves even in the midst of what looks like real conflict or real barriers or walls uh, that Paul is confronted with when people reject the gospel. But I think what we need to actually get our heads around is what would motivate the Apostle Paul to enter into, uh, go from city to city to walk thousands of miles to enter into these urban hubs and to subject himself to ridicule, to beatings, uh, to, to all of the different difficulties that he faced, everything from starvation to, uh, to being mocked, uh, to being stoned. I mean, you name it, Paul went through it. But I think we need to keep in mind the theology that actually motivated Paul. The theology was God's active participation in Paul's life, or what I should say is Paul's active participation in God's sovereign purposes and plans. Paul himself said in the letter to the Romans, I think sums up the driving force behind everything that he did after his conversion to Christianity. In Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He states that because there is shame around the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but remember, this is the same Paul who said, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul is not talking here about an attribute of God. He is talking about God's active participation in human history to set right that which is wrong. And, he, and by, by, through the gospel, for what, is, what are we told about the gospel? That God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. This is the motivation behind Paul, and this needs to be the motivation behind us as a community of faith as we continue to participate in God's purposes for his world. We hold to a narrative theology. The world is telling a story, and it's going somewhere, and it's going to end in a place that we believe is good, that God is going to set right all that is wrong, that he has perfectly accomplished his purposes and plans through the giving of his son who died for us, and not just for us, but for the sins of the world. And I think that this motivation is what we need to, be, to confront a city like Portland 
And as we'll see here in Paul's pattern, I want us to believe, just as Paul declared in Romans 1, that God's word is performative. It has the power to create what it requires. I think that's really important for us to understand. So let's begin with Paul's pattern. Paul's pattern begins with one of our pillars, the city. It says in verse one, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. I want you to see that Paul had a very strategic way of doing missionary work. He went to the hubs of of the Roman civilization. He went into the cities. Now, Athens, it's true, was only a city of about 10,000, but Athens was a massive city of influence. And I think that what we need to realize is that it is cities today that actually create the culture that infiltrates and affects the whole the whole country. And Paul understood this principle well. If I can get the cities, I will get everyone. Uh, and I think that Paul's focus here, as he left Athens, he went to Corinth. We saw his ministry work in Athens. He did the same thing. He would go into a city. He would enter into the synagogue. He would preach the gospel. If the gospel was rejected by the Jews, he would immediately go out and proclaim the gospels to the Gentiles until he had a community of believers. Uh, And once there was a community of believers, he would establish a church. He'd put in place its leaders, and then he would leave that city, go to the next city, and do it all over again. And I think that this was an incredible missionary plan. It was a plan that God inspired Paul to do, but Paul stepped out in faith. And this pattern had great success. And in Corinth, uh, this, is, this was so strategic. Corinth, unlike, uh, unlike Athens, Athens, which was only 10,000, Corinth was over a half a million people. Uh, Corinth was the great commercial center of the Greco-Roman world. It was situated close to the Isthmus, which joined mainland Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It commanded trade routes in all directions. And Corinth was known not only for its commerce, and I think this is important for us when we think about parallels, because Portland has many parallels to Corinth. And I think that we can see Portland as a city that is growing and increasing in its commerce. Uh, Just look at the how expensive our city's becoming. Look at the amount of people. When we do Discover Door of Hope, it is not uncommon now that new people that are coming to Door of Hope are people that are moving here for, um, for work from other places. Primarily, weirdly enough, New York, Texas, and California. Um, so Texas providing us, because it's a country unto itself, uh, and some of you are Texans, our own Russ Lacey, a Texan. Uh, so I, I think that we need to understand that Portland is a, is a commercial center, but it's, a, it's also a city of incredible culture. And we have, as, as a city in Portland, much like Corinth, this, this kind of hub where we have all of this, court, this culture at our disposal. So much culture, actually, that it actually has given birth to, a, a, to uh, an incredibly popular television show that I find offensive uh, called Portlandia, and I hate it every time I go outside of Portland uh, to another it's even, especially like when I was in London, the dumbest question that you could ask someone from Portland, have you ever seen Portlandia? Like, yes, I have. And sadly, it's far too true. Uh, and that is why I only watched the first season, because I never knew whether to laugh or to cry at how insane our city is. But I think that this, this combination of commerce and and, and entrepreneurial exploration, artistic expression, all the things that we love about the city also has a very dark underbelly, just like Corinth did. For Corinth may have been a city of incredible commerce, 
Uh, but it was also a city that was in, known for its immorality. In fact, Corinthian became a, a word that was used as a slur for someone who was sexually immoral in, in, in the first century. I, and we need to understand that behind the city, nearly 2,000 feet above sea level rose the rocky eminence called the Acrocorinth, and on its flat summit stood the temple of Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love, and a 1,000 female slaves served her and roamed the city streets by night as prostitutes. Now, what I want you to think about is Paul walking into a city, seeing this incredible city of commerce, this progressive urban environment and in seeing the possibility of the gospel and, and how diverse the city is because of all these, the ports and all these people from all over the Roman civilization coming into the city, coming in and out of the city. And at one point, there's got to be excitement as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a church planner, so much potential trusting in the power of the word of God. But at the other side of it, the side of it that we often see in Paul is just the, the, what has to happen as a man who is entering into the trenches and doing ministry is just being beat up by the sin, by the brokenness, by the incredible need. And I think about this for us as a church in a city like Portland, is that we often become immune to the sin under the surface. I was thinking about this for us because I often, we joke about things like Portlandia and we see all the cultures in Portland being known. And especially when I was younger, when I would come to Portland in my teen years and when I met Darcy in the 90s, Portland was a, was a much less expensive city, which drew a ton of artists. And it's what gave it that sort of artistic bohemian flair that I actually grieve is, is dissipating quickly as the city becomes more and more expensive. They're all moving to Detroit now. Uh, and, and it's become, it's changed dramatically even since Dora Pope started. But I still see this incredible brokenness. When we see those, those stickers that say, keep Portland weird, it means something more than just this tongue-in-cheek statement. When we think about things like our, uh, the fact that we have more strip clubs than Las Vegas does, when we look at the, at the amount of addiction that are on the streets of Portland, when we see the level of homelessness when we see the gentrification of our city and the ever-whitening urban center and the pushing out of poverty into the, in, out into the perimeters of the city, out of sight, all of these things have underneath it an underbelly that is deeply problematic. When we look at the endless supply of restaurants and new places to eat and the amount of, the amount of brew pubs that you can drink a new beer every day. I don't like beer because it makes me fat. Um, but I think about all of that that is offering, and it just continues to feed the appetite. But underneath it is, is, is a real level of brokenness. I was thinking about this in regards to even our, our infamous. I mean, do you guys realize, first of all, do you know that this space here, one Sunday a year, right after church is done, hosts an amateur porn festival, only in Portland, only in Portland, they're like, we had to get out quick because they were getting ready to put on the fest. We are the city that has the world's largest naked bike ride. And, 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 and I was thinking about that as well because I used to get so annoyed by how immature that was. Uh, and because it's always people that shouldn't be naked. Uh, I, and I remember one year, I was like, that's it. I'm, just, I'm so frustrated. I'm just going to ride right through the middle of that naked bike ride on my motorcycle. I don't know what I thought I would achieve by that, but I did it anyway because I'm impulsive. And right as I got into the middle of a huge group of naked bike riders, my motorcycle died. 
<laughs> and I had to like push it off the street while people were riding on both sides of me. And people were yelling at me like, take your clothes off, get a bicycle. And, and then I just remember the most horrifying moment was a voice that came from above me. And it was like, nice bike. Why don't you take your clothes off? And I look up and it was a naked man on a super tall unicycle, <laughs> painted red, literally like just the naked devil, just like this horrible vision above me. Like, I'm like, oh Lord, where do I live? <laughs> and all of the, all the humor. And then I went, I'm like laughing about it, telling my family, I mean, my kid, we watch it out our, they drive down our road uh, in, right in front of our house. And it's like, we take the lawn chairs out for the, for the parade. And I think about this, when I really think about it, though, once the humor's died down, I see beneath it not what is, per, what is put forth is this is our freedom, this is liberty, this is our ability to express ourselves, but the reality is, is what people are broken and hurting, and they need love, the love specifically of our Savior. as a community that holds to Jesus and how we look at how we look at this city, it requires a lens, a lens that can only come to us through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm telling you, the more we live here, the more desensitized we become to the, to the brokenness of this city, uh, the less effective we will be in reaching it for the gospel. Paul was very intentional about going into the cities, but the intention was to actually bring transformation to it. People come to Portland and brag about Portland. Uh, it's almost like the sexy place for church planters to go because it's a cool city. And they'll say, it's the most unchurched city. Like the bragging point is, I'm a pastor in the most unchurched city in the, in the United States. We should never brag about that. We should be heartbroken about it. My hope is that the gospel brings such incredible transformation to this city that it becomes the city that is known for a revival, known for an awakening to the person of Jesus because that's what it needs. I think that, uh, that John Stott had a really incredible insight uh, that he, he wrote actually in his commentary to Acts, clear, like way before all the conversation around urbanization uh, and the need for churches to be strategic and planting themselves in the city and why we have as our fourth pillar, the city of Portland. We feel called to this place because we believe that Portland is a city that affects and impacts culture. And if we can actually change the culture of the city by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, we think it's important and strategic to be here. This is why we have as a pillar, the city. The pillar that actually creates the most, uh, the, the most challenges for many people, uh, feeling that maybe we're being snobbish or maybe we're being exclusive, that's not the point. The point is, is that we want to strategically bring the gospel where the gospel needs to come. And listen to what John Stott said. He said, the process of urbanization is a significant new fact of this century, constitutes a great challenge to the Christian church. On the one hand, there is an urgent need for Christian planners and architects, local government, politicians, urban specialists, developers, and community social workers who will work for justice, peace, freedom, and beauty in the city. But I love this. On the other, Christians need to move into the cities and experience the pains and the pressures of living there in order to win city dwellers for Christ. Commuter Christianity is no substitute for incarnational involvement. This is why I have constantly put pressure on this idea that it's not enough to just work in the city. It's not enough to just come into the city on Sunday. We need to actually, if we want to see reconciliation to the gospel 
in the neighborhoods of the city, we need to have a reconciled people actually a part of the city, being in the city. And this is why this has been such an important part. And I think it's interesting that this is Paul's strategy and it just happens to be our fourth pillar. But look what he does. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. The second pattern in Paul's church planting uh, mission was not only uh, to go into these cities, but it was also right out of the gate, Paul would have tried to... He, as, as Tom said last week, Paul did ministry as a team, and Paul, would, Paul needed community just like everybody else. You see it in his letters. When he was left alone or was in jail, he longed for companionship. And I think that this is so powerful. The first thing he does is he seeks out two Christians that are already there. Uh, and, the, and these two Christians, there's Aquila uh, and Priscilla, the husband and wife. Uh, what's really interesting is that Paul actually addresses, uh, it greets Aquila and Priscilla in both his letter to the Corinthians as well as at the end of his letter to the Romans. Um, and, and he reverses the order. He actually gives precedence or prestige to Priscilla, the wife. And I think, once again, I think it's just a worthy side note that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ, that the Holy Spirit uniquely or gifts equally men and women to participate in God's kingdom work uh, in the ministry. And I think that Luke has gone out of his way uh, to note women of significance uh, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and I think that it's worth noting here. But this is what I really want to state about this, is that Paul needs community. Uh, and, and here he finds a couple, uh, and he enters into the, 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 his trade, which is tent making, which is why Christians use that as, we, we, I hate how we turn things into like catchphrases, like, like, hey, do you have a tent making ministry? Like, don't say that, because in Portland, that's actually probably like you actually make tents, um, <laughs> along with small hatchets and other leather goods. Um, I actually met with a kid who graduated from architecture school once. He's like, I'm making leather belts now. I'm like, I'm sure your parents are stoked. Uh, so I, I think that we need to understand that Paul was, was a leather worker probably, and he actually worked purposefully because as a church planter, the ability for a brand new church community to support him in the work of ministry, it doesn't, it doesn't in fact, Paul argues that that those who preach the gospel should be supported by the gospel. But Paul himself also would state things like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul was willing to work with his own hands to actually engage in labor that he might preach the gospel unhindered so that he wouldn't be accused of anything. Uh, but here's the importance that I want you to see here is that he didn't do this alone. Now, the reason I put this um, as a significant point is because we often live uh, in this time where people try to divide being a follower of Jesus um, from the church. In other words, 
I love Jesus, but the church is a place full of hypocrites. The church has hurt me. The church has done this or that. I don't understand it. I don't connect with it. We even, uh, Cameron brought up an amazing point the other day in our pastoral meeting, how people actually have deeply flawed understanding of the church, even within our own community, when they say things like, I love my community group, but I'm having a hard time connecting with the church. The community group is a part of church. Because we, the people, are the church. Church is not what happens mainly on Sunday. Uh, church is what we do as a community throughout the whole week as the people of God. We are the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. And I think it's important for us to understand that because we need one another. Because if you have ever gone into a period where you did not have Christian community around you, you have discovered very quickly that the essence of the Christian life is restoration of right relationship. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are made for relationship. Sin does what? It destroys relationship. Sin is anything that destroys relationship. And so what we need to understand as a community of faith is that we were created in the image of God and that image has been distorted. That means relationships have been hurt. But God sent his son that he might restore a right relationship with him. It didn't change God, it changed our relationship to him. And that relationship, as it restores a right relationship with him, it needs to be evidenced and played out in a right relationship with others, first and foremost in the community of faith. This is why Jesus said the first step in evangelism is this, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We have a gentleman outside today, the first time in Dwarf Hope's history, that's picketing our church. And he was picketing Imago Day last week, and the lead pastor sent me a sent me a photo and he said, hey, Josh, is this one of your elders? And I just, (laughs) and I said, I don't know. (laughs) But man, it breaks my heart because you have one person out there picketing a church he knows nothing about, the sign that that is attacking the church where you I mean, I don't even think we have documents on our, on our website about what we think about marriage and remarriage. But I just want to encourage you guys, when you go out, what is the evidence that we are followers of Jesus is how we love one another and even how we respond to things like that? And I love that Tom went up to him already outside and said, man, Jesus loves you. You should come on inside, but you should put your sign down. Um, and I don't know if you guys saw him when you came in, but man, we as a community, we have the opportunity to deflect And what does Paul say when people come against the gospel? How are we to handle that? We are to handle that by how we love one another. Paul didn't just go into Corinth as this lone ranger. He actually sought out whatever believers he could find. I mean, his desire was create community because the gospel spreads. The intention of the gospel is to spread through the church, the establishment of the church, community of faith. Our second pillar at Door of Hope is community, intentional life together around the person of Jesus. It's not just our desire as a church to come on Sunday and hear the gospel proclaimed and worship together. This is one element, one aspect of what should be our week-long reality as a community of faith proclaiming the good news by how we not only speak, but how we care for one another and how we care for the city in which God has called us to. And I think it's really cool that Paul here finds a couple that he lives life with, he works with, and proclaims the gospel with. And that was totally necessary to actually handle the overwhelming realities of the brokenness of a city like Corinth. Now look, uh, look here. Uh, because we see the third pattern in 
in Paul's work is specifically what it is that he proclaims. And he proclaims again and again the cross. And it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul's pattern was to go to the city to establish community and to preach the gospel. And I think that this is powerful. He goes into the synagogue as usual. He preaches the gospel. He's trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Remember, we're already told what it is that he's declaring. He was showing them from the scriptures how it is that Jesus was the Messiah and how the Messiah had to suffer and how he rose from the dead. He proclaims the gospel in all of its fullness. But what happens when the gospel is rejected? Paul says, and I think it's, it's fascinating here because there is an element, Paul really does function like the prophets of old. He goes in, he, he proclaims when it's, when it's rejected, he does what? He says, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. And what he's saying there is he's saying, the gospel has been proclaimed, you are responsible to how you respond to that gospel. I am not responsible. One of the things that should encourage us in regards to evangelism is that we are called to be witnesses and we are not responsible for how people respond to it. And what we need to be comfortable with, uh, what, what we need to be comfortable with is the fact that when the gospel goes forth, it will draw some, but it will repulse others. What we should be very uncomfortable with is people not being uncomfortable or drawn by what it is that we believe because they don't know what we believe. What we should not be comfortable with are people's actual apathy toward us because they don't have any idea that we follow Jesus at all because Jesus calls us to be a visible community. We are to make visible what God has done invisibly within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. We are to make visible the person of Jesus. And I think that we need to understand that. We are not called to be a secret society. I'm not telling you to go out and be offensive, but I am telling you that, that but what we do with our hands and feet needs to correspond with what we say. There is a proclamation component to being a Christian that falling in love with Jesus means that we share that love with others. If we really believe that it's the key to helping people, to saving people out of their brokenness, out of their hurt, we should not withhold that salvation from others. I think it's important that we understand that. And I love here how Paul brings the gospel and when he gets rejected, he just goes, he's like, fine, I'll just go somewhere else. It's, it's on you to respond. I'm just preaching what I have been told to preach. I am just sharing the word. I am trusting, as I shared in the beginning, that God's word has the power to, to create what it requires. And when Paul found, when he found resistance to that message, he just simply moved on and preached where there was willingness. I, I think that it's interesting what drove him, because it's hard when you, get, when you find rejection. I don't know about you, but I've been sharing the gospel with my dad for years now. And sometimes he'll just cuss at me and threaten to hang up if I continue. I'm not like forcing it down his throat. It's like he'll ask me things about the church, and then the moment he opens up the possibility, I'll be like, Dad, where are you at? Like, what do you think about all of this? What, tell me what your thoughts are on Jesus. Say, I don't want to talk about that. I'm like, all right. It's fine. 
And how, how do else do I reflect the gospel? I, well, I can reflect the gospel by being a son who's there for him. And when my dad's been in the hospital and really sick, I've immediately dropped everything and flown up to Alaska to sit with him in the hospital because sometimes you just have to be the hands and feet. But other times you gotta open your mouth and speak. And I think what we need is a discernment from the Holy Spirit on which, which is required. Some people are all words with no action. Other people are all actions and nobody knows what's behind the actions. And I think that we need to be a balance of both word and deed. We need to be a balance of word and spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide and direct you in those realities. Because it can be really discouraging when people don't respond. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we should always have the encouragement of we know how good this message is, how it's transformed and brought metamorphosis to our lives. We should believe and hope that for everyone that we meet. Well, enough about that. I, I, I want to, oh, I'll just share with you one verse. Because I believe that Paul was driven by the same thing that drove Jeremiah. Because what we're told is when we were born again, God placed his spirit within us. And that spirit within us should not, we should never be comfortable with doing nothing with the gift that is within us. Uh, and, and there's only, so people always ask me, like, what's the meaning behind your tattoos? And first of all, I was covered in tattoos before I became a Christian. So I have never been one for Christian witnessing tattoos. Notice my signature. Like, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo to witness to people. If that's you, praise Jesus. Uh, I think Bibles are effective or just the memorization of Scripture. Uh, and someone's like, what, what's the meaning behind your tattoos? Nothing. I was kind of a weak, art, arty kid, and I just wanted people to think I was tough. That's the only reason I got them. I thought they were cool, and they made me feel tough. And then I've just continued on that path as I hit midlife crisis. That's all. There's nothing behind it. Uh, like, they're like, what's the meaning of the butterfly and the tiger? Nothing. I thought they were cool. That's it. There's no other reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I did get one text, uh, one scripture, and it's tattooed across my chest. And that's why next week I'm going to preach shirtless. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the text is for me because I don't preach shirtless. And, and a preacher that preaches shirtless maybe shouldn't be a preacher. Uh, so, I, and that text is actually Jeremiah 20, verse 9. And there's a reason. It's the pro, it's, I remind myself. Every time I see this, this verse backwards, because <laughs> I always read backwards, <laughs> if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, when, it, when it's hard to carry the message of God, when I'm wearied by this call upon my life, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I think that's what drove Paul. And I think that that is what drives me because there are many times when I'm tired, I'm weary of preaching the gospel. I'm weary of sharing the gospel with my dad and not seeing him respond. But when I, when I grow weary, there is in my heart a burning fire shut up on my bones and I try to hold it back, but I cannot. And so I just want to offer as your pastor, I'm willing to pay for anyone that wants to get that matching tattoo on their chest. No, I'm just joking because I know in Portland, someone will take me up on that. So I am not paying for anyone's tattoos. Um, in fact, when young people ask me if they should get tattoos, I'm like, I don't know, because whatever you think is cool at 19, you'll think is stupid at 30, and then you'll just have to do what I do, which is cover them with bigger, maybe uglier tattoos. Um, so <laughs> enough about tattoos. God's providence. Um, this is interesting, because we see Paul's pattern. Notice the pattern. Three of our four pillars. We see 
Paul's focus on the city, we see his focus on community, and we see his focus on the preaching of the gospel. And I would argue that the fourth um, pillar is even there as well, which is simplicity. Paul had a very simple way of doing ministry. It was very effective. Uh, But what I want us to see in contrast, and we'll close out here, is God's providence. Because first of all, we find his provision. And I think this is great. It says, and he left there and went to the house of man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So he's chased out of the synagogue Uh, And he meets this man, Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. How's that? Paul's like, fine. You don't like me? I'm going to go to the next city. No, he's like, I'm going to go across the street. And he, he begins to preach the gospel there. And on top of that, look at God's providence. In this resistance, Paul loses his space to preach the gospel, is given a house right next to the temple, and the head, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus himself, believes in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So as Paul is facing what feels like defeat, he's feeling like he's losing his place in the city God providentially is behind everything that's happening. And here we see God opening the door and provides a a place for Paul to preach. And I think that the slang, but in this case appropriate phrase, in your face comes to mind when you read this. Because here Paul is now next door preaching effectively the gospel and people are getting saved. And you remember the door of hope. For those of you who were here in the beginning, when we started Door of Hope, God's providence was all over it. When we, I, I was like, let's start a church. And Darcy's like, sounds good, let's do it. And so first of all, we're like, where are we gonna meet? I don't know, should we meet at our house? And she's like, I don't think we have enough space. And so I walked by a little church. I just happened to be on a walk with my wife and it's called The Little Church and it's a yoga studio. I see that space, I say, hey, um, I see your painting. I used to be a painter. If I paint in your building, would you let me have a Thursday night gathering here for a church start? And they're like, sure, for a month. So I'm like, great. So we started up. Within a month, we had gotten too big. One week before we had to be out of that building, we're like, where are we going to meet now? We have like 75 people coming already. Where should we go? And the next week, I get a call from Henson Baptist saying, Hey, the board has met. We've decided, even though we don't have a lead pastor right now, you guys can utilize the annex and we'll let you use, utilize it rent-free um, until we hire a new lead pastor and then it'll be up to him whether or not you can stay or, or you go. And so we went into the annex. We were there for five years. We had a great relationship with the lead pastor, but at five years, we had outgrown that space uh, and they didn't want us to go to three services because it was actually beginning to create conflict with their gatherings at Henson Baptist proper. And so we're like, what are we going to do? How do? Where do we go? And we looked at one church and, and, and we lost out on it. And we looked here at Washington High School and that wasn't feasible financially. And, uh, and then what happens? Amazing. We, we know we have to be out in like six months. And we're like, what are we going to do? We, now we're trying to move a thousand people. And I remember the, the, this young man came up to me after church and he said, hey, I'm a church planner in town. I came to service. I heard you say you're looking for a building. I just talked to a pastor in Gresham that owns a building on Northeast 9th in Fremont. You should give him a call. Here's his number. I called him. He met with me the next day and he's like, I think Door of Hope should meet here. And we're like, and we'll give it to you for super cheap, like $500 a month. Uh, And we're like, okay, which entered into six months of building. We outgrew that space. We're like, what are we going to do? We, we, need to, we need to rethink, and God opened up the space here. Every time, God has providentially been moving. And it's always come at the 11th hour, and it's always come in a way that I would never have expected. And I, I actually sense that same sort of providential move right now. I think that we're on the verge, on the cusp of something really amazing. 
Uh, and I think that we just need to be open. How is God leading us? Are we, are we paying attention to where the Spirit's guiding? Are we losing hope? Because I think Paul was a, a man who is able to manage uh, to hold on to hope because he saw the fruit of the Spirit and because he loved Jesus. He says, what compels me is the love of Christ that compels me. And so God's provision, he immediately provides a place, and in that place, now there's fast-growing fruit in Corinth. A vibrant community is birthed. Even the Jewish synagogue leader is saved and his entire family baptized. It's amazing. Uh, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary uh, to China, said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And I believe that is absolutely true. But secondly, we not only see God's provision, but we see his promise. Uh, For the Lord speaks to Paul directly. And it says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Notice that. Don't be afraid. Why would he tell him that? Because Paul probably was afraid. He says, go on speaking and do not be silent. Don't be weary in doing good, as Paul would write. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Jeremiah, once again, the prophet, was given the same word. Remember, Jeremiah saw no fruit in his life, but God said to him in chapter one, he, said, he was scared as a young man, and he says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. As it's been wisely said by Dr. Livingston, missionary to Africa, I am immortal until God calls me home. A true belief in God's God's promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And what compels us, remember, I love that, for I have many people in this city who are mine. And I think of 1 Timothy, what is God's desire? What is his plan? What is the purpose of the church? And I think it's stated very clearly in 1 Timothy 2.4, that God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. One of the many lessons that Acts teaches, teaches us quietly as it goes along is that you tend to get the guidance you need when you need it, not before and not in too much detail. Paul is given the encouragement and the vision that he needs to keep pushing forward, and we need that same encouragement and that same vision to be reminded that God is really with us, that when we preach, when we share, when we love, when we serve, that it is Christ by his spirit in us that empowers us to do that work, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. And finally, we see within God's providence the call to participation. And he stayed a year and six months, a year and a half in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. And I just want to close with saying this, that we always need, when studying the scriptures, a right balance between God's agency and human activity. We need to remember that God's righteousness is not only active in the call, but also in the response. That is what gives me the encouragement to preach. I believe Jesus's words in John chapter 12, verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I actually believe that the gospel is God's redemptive purposes for his creation and that he is a good God and that everything we do as the church must declare for God so loved the world. This is the call upon our lives. And may we understand this, as we understand, as we make plans, we must understand God's providence undergirding it. And I think it's stated best, and I'll close with this verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ, Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we need to do, friends, is surrender today to the Spirit of God. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. I believe the only thing that we really have the ability to do is to surrender, and it is through our surrender that we actually find liberty. We actually find the freedom, and when we surrender, that is when the Spirit can guide us into those divine interactions, those intersections of grace that are ready to occur all around us. God has prepared the works for us. He has given us the faith. He has done the saving. What we need to be is yielded so that we might participate in his purposes that are being played out all around us. May Door of Hope fulfill its purpose as the bride of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.